have come to Romans chapter 9, verse 13 is where I want to begin reading. If you have your Bibles, I want you to read along with me so that you can see these words as I read. If you're visiting with us today, we started in Romans 1.1. Maybe it's been two years ago now. We find ourselves today in the heart of Romans 9. Romans 9.13 As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? And what Paul has been arguing for is this. In verse 6, he emphasizes that the Word of God has not failed. Why does it seem like the Word of God has failed? Because the Jews in multitudes are perishing. And in verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about those Jews. It's breaking his heart. He could wish himself accursed. For the sake of these, his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, because they're perishing. And somebody's likely to look at that and say, what's happening? The people of God seem to be perishing. Is the word of God failed? Weren't they given promises? Weren't they given covenants? Why are they failing? And God is inspiring Paul to come along and show us that God's word has not failed. Everything is happening exactly according to God's purposes and God's dictates, God's counsels and God's decrees. Nothing is failing as far as God is concerned. That God purposely raises up a child of promise like Isaac, not Ishmael. God purposely elects. He's got purposes of election, you see in verse 11. He purposely chooses Jacob to love. He hates Esau. This is declared and decreed. This is declared to Rebekah while the two are yet unborn, having done no good or bad, that the purposes of election might stand. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because it can seem that way. Doesn't that seem a little bit unjust for, for God to determine to hate a man before he done good or bad? Just remember this, and we're going to get down to this. Folks, these vessels of honor and vessels of wrath are all taken from one lump, and that lump is fallen humanity. And if God were to not show mercy to any, if He were to hate us all, that is exactly what we would deserve. But let's follow the... Let's follow this reasoning now. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. Why isn't there injustice? Because for God to pass over folks as far as mercy and love is concerned is exactly according to how He spoke to Moses back in the book of Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will. The people who want to run around and tell us that human will is the ultimate determinant factor in salvation have not well studied Romans chapter 9. Human will is involved, is it not? People who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who love God, do so willingly. I mean, we're told in, what is it, John 1 and verse 12, to as many as have received Him. To them, He gave the right or the authority to become children of God, as many as believe in His name. We must receive. There must be an act of the will. But ultimately, human will, human exertion, is not the supreme factor. What is it? It's God who shows mercy or who has mercy. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he not only has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? And that is a question that would be produced. Why does he still find fault? I mean, if his will is supreme in this thing, and he purposely is not only showing mercy on some, but deciding to hate some, not only softening some and leading them to Christ, but on others hardening them, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul doesn't exactly give us an answer as, as much as we might like answers to some of the questions we would have about God. It's interesting. Scripture doesn't always answer all those questions for us. Here Paul is basically refuting and answering a person who just really doesn't like the fact that God's like this. A person that has some problems, has some pride. Paul addresses them, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. You know what we've been dealing with in the book of Romans? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. You all need to get that. When you go back to Romans 1.1, you've got Gospel right away. We find Gospel of God, Gospel of His Son. We are, we are the whole chapter 1, you find that Paul is putting our focus in that direction. He is saying, I am going to deal with the gospel. And he tells us this in verse 16 to chapter 1. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's what he's setting us up for. He's going to spend this book of Romans delving into the depths of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And it's the power of God unto salvation. That means it's absolutely certain that when we proclaim this truth, some are going to have the power of God fall upon them and they are going to believe and be rescued from the damnation of their sins, from the power of their sins. It's the power of God unto salvation. Now, I intend this morning to do this, to proclaim the good news of this gospel through the hardening of Pharaoh. Does that sound like good news? Does it sound like good news to you that God hardened Pharaoh? I want to show you that it is. I want to show you there's gospel here. I want to show you there is actually good news, not bad news. And I want to do that with three points. First, I want to deal with the mystery. Second, I want to give you a warning. And then third, we'll hit the heart of what that good news is. So, mystery, warning, good news. First, Let's look at the mystery. Verse 17. Now, now look, if you're here today, we're dealing with God's inspired Word. I want you to see in your Bibles that what I tell you is so. I don't want you just to hear me. I want you to see that God's Word actually teaches what I'm telling you. You know one thing? I, I pray that our church will never get to the place where we want to simply tickle the ears of men. We want to deal with God's truth faithfully, honestly. Romans 9.17 For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you say, well, what is verse 17, God telling Pharaoh that he's going to show his power in him, have to do with 
Him showing mercy and Him hardening? Well, simply this. The way God showed His power in Pharaoh is the fact that He hardened Pharaoh. How do we know that? Well, when you go back to Exodus, now I'm going to quote this. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 4.21. Let me quote that to you. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There you have it. The meaning of the word harden. Let's think about that for a second. It's very straightforward. Most of you probably have a good feel for the meaning of the word already. It's, it's not complex, not complicated. Now, look. Obviously, the word harden is very closely related to the word hard. And Paul uses that word somewhere else in Romans. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, listen to this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What should strike you is that a hard heart is a heart that is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Men, get this, men are hardened Unto condemnation. For God to harden someone is for God to make someone stubborn, rebellious, and wrath-worthy. God hardens men so that they will not listen to what He commands them to do. Now look, let me stress Two things right at this point that the Bible undeniably teaches. Two things. Undeniably teaches. Here's the first one. God hardened Pharaoh. You may not like that the Bible teaches that. But you cannot deny that it does teach that. At least ten times in the book of Exodus, God says things like this. Exodus 7.3 I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9.12 The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 10.1 The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Exodus 14.8 And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you know as well as I do, that the term harden, it means exactly what we think it means. God said, let my people go. God hardened his heart so that he did what? Wouldn't let the people go. This is exactly what he says. Exodus 5.2 Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's what it is to have a hard heart. Scripture says, it was God that hardened. Pharaoh's heart, so that Pharaoh would not obey the voice of the Lord. God did this. That's what Exodus teaches us. And that's what Romans 9 teaches us. It's the exact same God being put forth. Some people have this idea. God of the Old Testament, different than God. That's not true. God of Romans 9 is the same God of Exodus 9, folks. Exact same God put before us. So no one can deny that the Bible teaches this, right? God hardened Pharaoh. You all see that? Okay, second thing. Second biblical truth that I want you all to get straight in your minds. God not only hardened Pharaoh, but what does Romans 9.18 teach us? God hardens whomever He wills. Now, I want you to understand this. Pharaoh is not just an exception some rare case that we hardly ever see. The Lord is currently hardening some of you. Some of you sitting in this room are right now being hardened by God. You don't like this. 
you are resisting this. You do not want to be saved by Christ. You do not want to repent of your sins. Look, He hardens whomever He wills. And I want to give you a good idea of just how many people this includes. Consider this. In verse 18, there are only two categories, are there not? Look at verse 18. Two categories. God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Do you know what that means? That means that if you are not in the category of mercy, it doesn't matter whether you wear modest clothes, you come to church, it doesn't matter whether you own a Bible, it doesn't matter that you made a little prayer at some time back in your life. Look, if you do not belong to the group that God has mercy on, those He draws to the Lord Jesus Christ, those that find in Christ their all in all, like we heard from the young man this morning. If you're not in that category, by default, what category are you in? There's only two categories, folks. You see, we don't want to get this little notion that, well, yeah, in, in a few extreme cases, God hardens people. No, what I'm telling you this is Jesus Christ said that there is a way that goes to eternal life. How many are on that way? Few. You know who those few are? Vessels of mercy. They're the ones, they're the whomever God decides and determines and decrees to show mercy upon. That's who they are. And how many are on the road to destruction? You know what? That's the group that's being hardened. God is hardening many, many, many people. Look, let me show you this right from the immediate context. Do you all remember what the problem was at the beginning of Romans chapter 9? Why are all the Jews perishing? I mean, if they were God's people, how can they be perishing? Hasn't God's Word failed? Oh, folks, go over to Romans 11 and verse 7. You may find something there that shocks you. You know what Paul says? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? It was seeking God by way of righteousness. Right? It was seeking eternal life. It was seeking God by the way of righteousness. But it sought that righteousness not through faith, but by what? By keeping law. And in so doing, they didn't find what they were seeking. But those who sought it by faith found it. But notice what it says there. The elect obtained it. Those who were chosen. But what happened to all the rest? They were hardened. Do you see that in Romans 11.7? The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Do you know right there? Hardened is a passive verb. Do you know what that means? They, it doesn't say they hardened themselves. It says they were hardened. Something external to themselves hardened them. Read the next verse. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. Ears that would not hear. Down to this very day. Oh folks, God's plan hasn't been overthrown. God's ways, God's plans, God's decrees are all happening exactly according to His will. He shows mercy exactly where He promised. He hardens all others. That's the truth the Bible teaches us. Romans 9.18 He hardens whomever He wills. Now someone will certainly come along and say that God only hardens those who have already hardened themselves. Is that not what people like to say? The problem with that is it isn't true. That's not what's being taught there. The Lord determined to hate and harden Esau when? Before he was born, folks. In Exodus 4.21, God determines to harden Pharaoh before the Bible ever says that Pharaoh becomes hardened. Romans 9.18 clearly shows us that God shows mercy and God hardens on exactly the same basis. And what is that basis? 
whomever He wills. The Lord is free and unconstrained from influences outside Himself. Remember, He's got one lump. It is fallen humanity. How do, you, how do we know that? Because the ones He shows mercy to. Mercy. They come out of this lump of fallen humanity and some are shown, undeservedly shown mercy. Others are deservedly hardened. Now look for just a second at Romans 9.19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now look, if I'm right in assuming that God chooses to harden just as unconditionally as He chooses to show mercy. If I'm right that this is teaching double predestination, some chosen to mercy, some chosen to hardening, then Romans 9.19 makes perfect sense. Someone's only going to ask why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Only if Paul's teaching that God's will is always the deciding factor and it's not the free will of man. People only ask who can resist God's will if Paul's been setting forth God's will as that which cannot be resisted. I'm telling you folks, men may think that God just sits there in heaven wringing His hands wanting to do something for men impotent, waiting, frustrated because so many people reject Him. If that's a concept you have of the Lord God Almighty, it's time to change that concept. When men reject the Lord God, He's right there in the midst of the whole thing, hardening them. God is not some plaything. He isn't this pathetic invalid who's done what He can. Now He just sits and waits for us. He's fearful. He has great power. Have you never read of the God of this Scriptures that He takes the heart of kings? And what does He do with them? He turns them whithersoever He wills. Have you never read that this is the God who puts a spirit of slumber upon a people so that they fall asleep spiritually and perish? Have you never read that if any man comes to Jesus, what does the Father do? John 6.44 He only... You cannot come to the Father except what happens. The Father draws Him. Have you never read the Scriptures that God is the God who causes us to will and to do of His good pleasure? He rules, He reigns in the hardening, in the softening of men. So here are two truths in the Bible clearly taught. God hardened Pharaoh. Furthermore, God hardens whomever He wills, which is everyone who has not shown mercy and drawn to Jesus Christ. Now here's where the mystery comes in. Clearly God does decide who will be rebellious and hard. But here's the thing I want you to see. As God does this, He is determining who will, and get this word, deservingly perish. In hell. Now did you guys catch that? God only hardens men and women in such a way that they are truly guilty and blameworthy for their sin and hardness, and God is not. God says, I will harden Pharaoh so that he will not obey me. But you know what happens when Pharaoh is hardened and does not obey? Pharaoh himself says this. Exodus 10.16 I have sinned against the Lord your God. Exodus 9.27 I and my people are in the wrong. You know what? God hardens Pharaoh, yet even Pharaoh himself knows that he is personally to blame. He knows that he sinned. He knows he's in the wrong. He does not cry out that the Lord twisted his arm and made him sin. He knows he's guilty. Now listen. Here's the mystery. God chooses to harden whomever He chooses to harden, yet that never nullifies the guilt of those He hardens. God hardening a sinner does not make the sinner not guilty. It makes the sinner's guilt certain. I 
hope you'll realize that. Let's consider not just Pharaoh. Consider Judas. You know what? Psalm 41, Psalm 55. Do you know what happens back in the Psalms? David, under inspiration of God, prophesies that Judas is going to come along and betray Jesus Christ. Guess what? Did Judas have to betray Jesus Christ? Peter says he did. Peter says it was necessary. It was prophesied. It was absolutely necessary. And yet Judas himself says, I've sinned. This man was innocent. And yet he died in his sin and went to his own place, did he not? God raised up Judas to do this very thing, hardened him, fashioned him, a vessel of wrath, fashioned to do this very thing. And yet in the end, God is not blameworthy, Judas is. Now that is mystery. Those that laid their hands on Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2, again in Acts chapter 4, we find these men called lawless men, wicked men, who laid their hands on Christ and crucified Him. And yet, it was according to the predeterminate counsel of God. Was it not? Did God not purpose that Jesus Christ would go to the cross? And yet, wicked men are raised up to put Him to death. And yet, the men are wicked. God isn't. Now you say, explain that more thoroughly to me. I don't really get it. I'm going to tell you this. I am teaching you what the Bible teaches. I'm, I can't take this further. And you know what? When they came to Paul with it, Paul just said, men, women, best thing to do at that point is bow down and just worship the Lord and appreciate Him for who He is. I mean, he says, who are you? Right? Who are we? What we don't want to do is we don't, we don't want to become the fault finders. And you know what? Maybe some of you aren't so satisfied with that answer. Maybe some of you um, would like to take that even further and develop that further. And maybe you have some thoughts. But I'm taking you as far as Scripture takes us. Now, here's a warning. Do you all remember Job? The devil killed Job's children, did he not? The devil gave Job boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The devil took away Job's wealth. When Job and his three friends spend 29 chapters discussing what had befallen Job, one thing all four of them never debate. God was responsible for this. Even though the devil may have been an instrument and they didn't know that, but they all realized this, God is responsible. He's ultimately responsible for everything that happened to Job. And here's the thing. Job started thinking that God had dealt with him unfairly. That's what's happening in Job. Job was a blameless, upright, God-fearing man. Turned away from evil. He didn't think it was right that God had done that to him. He even went so far as to say this, Job 13.3, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. That's pretty bold, Job. Job 13.15, I will argue my ways to His face. I know Job's a good guy and blameless and upright, but you know when you start talking that way, you wanna, you're afraid the lightning bolt's coming. You want to distance yourself from... Okay. Why would I bring this up about Job when we're looking at Romans 9? For this reason, Job was quick to find fault with God for the way God is and the way God operates. A lot of people look at Romans 9, they don't like the way God operates. They don't like the fact He hardens men. Let me tell you this, it's a dangerous thing when men vent their opinions about what they think God should be like. When Job gets done, God comes to him and basically says, who is this that talks about me or darkens counsel without knowledge? 
The Lord thunders in Job 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? The Lord does not tolerate man judging Him. Oh, how often men do just that. They want to tell the Almighty what He should be like, how He should act, how He should run the universe. But for four straight chapters, Job is brought back to reality. God says, Job, if you feel you have all the answers, you feel yourself ready to argue with me to my face, then let's talk. And for four chapters, Job is not saying a whole lot. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? Job, it was I that did that. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I have. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. I know it. I'm adding. I'm adding some of God's response there in all of his questions. Do you know because you were born then and because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunder full? Job, it wasn't you, it was me. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, these great constellations of the night sky? I can. Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? I can. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? I do. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Not you, Job. Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Who has let the wild donkeys go free? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Do you give the horse his might? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I'll tell you this. Now that's just a little bit. I just grabbed a few verses here and there. In the end, Job's mouth is shut. Before this, he'd been so bold as to declare, I'll argue my case to his face. I've heard men talk that way, haven't you? Well, when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him. You're going to tell him. The most righteous man alive on the face of the earth at that time, blameless, upright, God-fearing Job. And in the end, you know all he can say? I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. What do you think you're going to say? To Job's three friends, the Lord says, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Let me tell you something. Not speaking right about God is a thing that causes God to become furious. I was thinking about that verse. Carlos brought it up to me when he was studying Ecclesiastes. You know, men continue on in their sin because they're not brought to pay for it today. And they become bold. We speak, oh how flippantly men speak about God. They want to throw their theories out. They want to say what God is like. These men were brought to account immediately. The day's coming when all of us will be. You and I live in God's universe. We live under His authority. He is here. We are created for His glory. We don't make this thing happen. If someone rises up and makes a pronouncement about what they believe God can or God can't be or what they say they can believe. You know, have you been around? I can't believe God would be like that. When people say such things, That has about as much to do with what God is really like as what a blind man would tell you the sunset's like. How are we going to know God? How do we figure out what He's like and how He works in the lives of men? One thought ought to come crashing down on us with absolute certainty. 
human opinion does not count for anything. What I feel, what I want, what I think about the way God should be is irrelevant. What you think is irrelevant. You know, folks, God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And where did we hear this morning He primarily does that? He does it in the face of Jesus Christ. He does it through inspired writers in Scripture. You know what we have before us? We have the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. He is setting forth in the Holy Word of God a revelation of the character of God. You're in a very dangerous position when you start finding fault with the way He's projected to us in Scripture. That's the warning. Take God as He presents Himself, not as you imagine Him to be. Men don't like the fact that God hardens But He does. The Bible inevitably teaches that. Now, how is there good news in that? How is there good news in that? That brings me to my third point. God hardening Pharaoh is good news. Let me show you how that is. First, if you're not a child of God, let me just say this, it may not be good news for you. This is good news to the Christian. This is good news to God's people. Why do I say that? Well, think with me. Scripture, Romans 9.17, Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see why Pharaoh was raised up and hardened? That God might reveal Himself. We talked about it in Sunday school today. Who has the eyes to see? Who is it that God... The unsaved are blinded, are they not? Who did God raise Pharaoh up to be seen by? Was it not His people whom He delivered out of Egypt? Do you know what happens? It's good news to God's people because it puts our enemies in proper perspective. God would have the wicked know that they cannot outreach God. And He would have God's people to know that our enemies cannot outreach God. All their venom, all their malignity, all their hatred, all their wicked schemes, they can't even sin, but God foils all their evil plans, turns it back against them and upon them. As one of the Psalms said, you guys ever heard this? Psalm 76.10 Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The Almighty shows wicked men and wicked angels so that His plans encompass them like a net. He has His hook in their nose. His chain is around their neck. Men feel like Oh, they can just go out and they can do this and, and nobody's there to call them into account. They can get away with this. They've got their schemes. They've got their plans. They can outwit. God says, in all your disobedience and all your malice and all your attempts to throw off my reins, it only is going to ultimately bring you defeat. Even, even you think about it. We looked at Job. Here comes the devil. He wants, you know, he's got his purposes and God takes that and just perfectly works it out so that God Himself is put on display. Do you know how God was put on display? Have you ever known a man that was, that was hit with sorrows like Job? And yet the power of God kept Job's faith. God says, Satan, have your best shot at him. And the power of God just spills out and shows us no matter what our enemies do, no matter what they think to do against us, no matter... I know the devil is... He's in our midst. And is he seeking to overthrow this church? You better believe it. Is he seeking to overthrow you Christians? You better believe it. And yet, his greatest devices, his greatest tactics, God comes along and, and turns it for good. You've got these wicked men. I mean, can you imagine the Jew... The, the, the Jewish leaders who thought, we're going to get rid of that Christ. They were jealous. We want 
what he's getting. We want the attention. We're going to off this guy. Wicked men. And what happens? God uses their wicked... Can you imagine the first guy that said there in that crowd, crucify him. And yet, God is right there formulating His whole plan and bringing it to pass. The counsel was God's. It was according to His predestined plan. The wickedness was man. It shows that the wicked... There is always a plan that lies beneath, behind, and surrounds their wickedness. They cannot run ahead of the reach of God. They're hemmed in on every side by His plans and by His predestination. Pharaoh, you think of him. We're going to off this people. Throw them all in the river. One of the little children thrown in the river themselves floats down to his own daughters, gets raised in his own house, becomes this deliverer that takes them out. He thought to off these people. Then he thought to make them slaves. He thought to make their work harder. And in all of this, he thought not to let them go. In the end, what happens? God's people go out by a mighty hand. They are delivered from this land, from this iron furnace, it's called. And you know what they did? They plundered Egypt. They took their riches. They left the greatest nation on the face of this earth just decimated. God's going to come through for His people all the time. Now let me tell you this. And this child of God, I hope you will see the good news in this. I hope you'll let this just grab you. In Romans 9.22, what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Check out these two words. In order. Why does God do all that? In order to make known the riches of His glory. For. Or on or to or towards all that all that preposition right there could be translated all those different ways he endures he fashions these vessels of wrath he hardens them why to unleash his glory towards the vessels of mercy upon them to them which he has prepared beforehand for glory you know something? It is, child of God, it is for your greatest good. Think with me. What's the greatest thing that you could ever have? It's God Himself. It's knowing God. It's seeing God. It's manifestations of God. It's coming all oh, that I may know Him. That's, that, that was Paul. All oh, that I may know Him. That is what the heart of the Christian longs after more than anything else. That we may know Him. That we may have His glory. What does Moses want? Not riches. Not a... Show me your glory. That's what he wanted. That's what burns in our hearts. That's what causes us to go hard after God. That's what causes us to pant as the deer pants. Why? We want God. And you know what? It is for your greatest good. It is for your greatest satisfaction as a child of God. It is for your greatest enjoyment of God. It is for your greatest perceptions of the glory of God. It is for your greatest good that the bulk of mankind should be hardened. You know what? 1 Corinthians 3.21 For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let me tell you something. Lost men are yours. There is a psalm that reads like this. I can remember as a young Christian, I, I scratched my head at this. I came to Psalm 136. And you know, in, in the King James the New King James, it uses the word loving kindness. I really wish that the ESV would have kept that rather than going to the word steadfast love. But Psalm 136 is that psalm that, you know, at, at the end of every one of the verses, it says, His loving kindness endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. Over and over and over, it says it after every verse. And as you read it, well, yeah, it starts out in the beginning where it made lots of sense to me as a young Christian. Yeah, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness 
endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His loving kindness. But you read down and then it's like He slaughtered kings for His loving kindness endures forever. And you're thinking, what? Listen to this. Psalm 136.15 God overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for His loving kindness endures forever. His love to His people demanded the destruction of Pharaoh. Let that sink in. This is a wonderful truth. Isaiah 43.4 Because you are... This is God speaking to His people. Because you are precious in My eyes and honored and I love you I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Do you see what God says to His people? I am willing to give other men for you. How? I'm going to put a whole group of people into a hell they deserve. I'm going to harden them. I'm going to fashion vessels of wrath that are fit for destruction so that the mercy I show to you will just explode as mercy in your sight. How so? I've seen a rainbow before in the sky with clear blue sky behind it. It was pretty. But have you ever seen a rainbow in the sky when that deep black thundercloud is stretched across the expanse of the sky behind that rainbow. Which one looks more beautiful? You know what God's doing? Lost men. They persecute us, do they not? It's for your good. Oh! We're told that! Are we not? Philippians 1, it seems it rings with a text like that. It, it only shows your election. It only shows that you belong to Him. It only shows God's love for you. It reveals that they are what they are. But they're given those persecutions. What do they do for us? They only purge us. They only make us more like Christ. You see, in that sense, they're given to us. They're given to us as well. That in their destruction, in the wrath that is shown to them, it just causes the mercy God shows to us to be ever so much more merciful. When we see that we came from the same lump they came from, depraved, fallen, wicked humanity, and that God could have easily taken us from that lump and deservingly made us vessels of wrath, we realize this mercy had nothing to do with us. It makes our praise. Do you see that, folks? It says that was done for the sake of the vessel. But what's happening there? What happened in Pharaoh? What happened in Judas? Do you realize the wicked men that crucified Christ? It happened according to the predetermined counsel of God. Judas was raised up according to the prophesying of David in the Psalms. Those men were raised up. They were hardened to turn him over, to forsake him, to betray him, and to ultimately crucify him for you so that you might have a death of the Son of God by which your sins could be pardoned. And I mean, God not only holds back that whole group of vessels of wrath, He didn't hold back His own Son from us. I'm telling you, there is a measure of love expressed in all this. We can look at this and we can think all this. This is, this is just a horrid doctrine. God hardening. No, it isn't. What Doctrines that have to do with God are glorious. They unleash aspects of God that just shows His love towards His people. If you look and you see, He was raised up. Pharaoh was. He was hardened. Why? So that people might see that. that. That His people might glory in that. That they might go forth from there and be able to say, let me tell you, their children about our God. He is a God that divided the Red Sea. He brought these ten plagues upon Pharaoh. He brought down the greatest ruler upon the face of this earth. Our God is great. And the more God allows you to see who He is, the more of a blessing that is to us. You see, folks, and this God is a God who, if He's on your side, 
He's on your side. If He's for you, like it said in Romans 8, who can be against you? I mean, are you guys getting the feel of that? I am secure. Everything is at my disposal. Everything's going to work out for good. Everything, including all lost. Now, look, just because you're lost today and you don't know Christ, that doesn't mean automatically that you're a vessel that He's determined to harden. That doesn't mean that you may not be a vessel of mercy. Because listen, His mercies are extended to man only one way. And it's through Jesus Christ. And the truth is this, if you will come to Christ, this God, who if He's for you, nothing can be against you, you He can be your God. But Scripture tells us there's only one way to approach this God. There's only one way to find the mercies of this God. It's through Jesus Christ. No vessel of mercy ever found mercy except aside from the mercies extended to us in Christ. Understand that. Now that's what's being taught here. Now we're going to run beyond this next week and we're going to get into the fact that the Gentiles are people who were not God's people. This God has come and saved and is saving and will save. Many among the Gentiles. And that's good news for us too. It only gets better, folks. It just It's one good thing building upon another good thing. It's not, oh no, Romans 8 is glorious and Romans 9 is... Not glorious, it is. It's just as glorious. It's just taking us deeper into the love of God for His people. Boy, amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the mercy that's been extended to us. Just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.